Lord God, you are always more ready to give than we are to receive. And so we ask that you would prepare us to receive what you would give. In the name of your Son, amen. Good gift givers really impress me. My grandma once gave me a hairbrush that struck me as exactly the kind of hairbrush that a human being ought to own. It had bristles just enough, and they were just the right kind of bristles. It, it had slim lines, but it wasn't slender. It had good weight in your hand, but it, it wasn't bulky. The design of a hairbrush, I, it occurred to me, is, and the, the design of a hairbrush and the forging of a sword are really very, they have a lot in common. And this was exactly that kind of weapon. I'm sure that one day the dog will get it, or my children are going to imagine it into something that involves Play-Doh and plastic buttons, or something like that. But at least so far, it's the only hairbrush I have owned in my entire adult life. But then the gift wasn't really the hairbrush. But it, it was the whole day that I spent with my grandma. My grandma Johnson was a master of the gift of time. When she died, I had a chance to talk to a few of my siblings and cousins, and we all had similar stories of days spent with grandma, doing just normal stuff, shopping trips, seeing a movie, going out to breakfast at her favorite restaurant, a Swedish place in North Park, Chicago. She loved to quilt and to handcraft, and she shared those gifts with us as well. My mother-in-law, who is here also, is also a great gift giver. She listens carefully and watches for what people particularly enjoy or particularly struggle with, and she has this knack for matching the gift exactly to the need. For example, she once gave me the ugliest pair of shoes I have ever owned. A dark blue injection molded pair of Crocs. But she gave this to me because she has seen me slip on my flip-flops or rush out the back door barefoot so often running out to the garden to get something that when I opened the box and saw these disgustingly blue Crocs, they really struck me. They really did. I had been seen in the italicized sense of the word. By contrast, on our very first Christmas as husband and wife, I somehow got into my head that what Elizabeth really needed in the italicized sense of the word was a meat grinder attachment for our KitchenAid. Don't judge me. And I don't remember what exactly I got her as an apology Christmas gift, but I'm sure that it was spectacular. But I'm not all terrible at gift giving. At my sister Anna's request, I once wrote a story to celebrate her engagement to my now brother-in-law, Mark, which I was really proud of. She used the story as part of their wedding announcements, and I had a friend from college illustrate a few scenes from the story, 
and I had them framed, and I gave them to her as a gift, and they were, they were beautiful. And I, I thought I had really arrived as a gift giver with that. But then she turned around and had the story with the illustrations bound in one of those Shutterfly books, and she gave me a copy of it for Christmas, and I was in tears. And knowing how much we love to cook, my mom, who's here, my parents are here also, my mom gave us a really good set of pots and pans when we got married. And 10 years in, we still use them every day. At one time, Elizabeth contacted one of my professors at Duke, entirely behind my back, and requested his top recommended readings. And she ordered them all and gave me a curriculum for Christmas. This year, she gave me 24 hours of total silence and solitude. For a person like me, that is heaven. Can you imagine 24 full hours with no people? But the creme de la creme of gifts goes to Elizabeth's great uncle Mike, who, when we got married, gave us a, a kitschy pair of salt and pepper shakers. To be clear, I hate kitsch. I know I need to be careful here because last year, sometime in one of my sermons, I disparaged a piece of kitsch. It was a little metal ornament that was also a multi-tool, but you could hang it on your Christmas tree. It was this little shaped thing. And then my sister went and she ordered it and she gave it to me for Christmas. So I'm going to have to put a finer point on this. I despise kitsch. <laughs> I hate it in the italicized sense of the term. But these salt and pepper shakers, they're wooden, they're shaped like apples, they're painted apple red. I mean, just to give you a sense of these pepper shakers, someone some genius realized that the stem of a pepper shaker, if you look at it from just exactly the right angle, looks like an apple leaf. And then like the thing that screws down to hold the, the pepper shaker or the pepper grinder together, it looks like the perfect little stem. Okay? And the, the, the bolt that you screw it down on to hold it is ground finely on two sides of it for easy access to refill. I mean, this thing is to butcher a line from Oscar Wilde, it is possibly the only true connection between art and nature. This pepper shaker. This is the kind of gift giver that Uncle Mike is. He's the master of the gift that creates its own demand when it's given. You didn't know you needed this until you got it. There are go-to shakers. But again, it's not about the salt and pepper shaker. Except it is about the salt and pepper shaker. Because the gift and the substance of the gift cannot be separated. And it's exactly here, somewhere at the intersection of the ordinary and the totally artificial. Or between practicality and sheer whimsy or between the concrete and the sublime, right there is where really good gift-giving happens. What does a pair of salt and pepper shaker cost? Like $3? I've never checked 
but I can't imagine that Crocs are all that expensive. But the point is not the pair of shoes. Gifting is a kind of tangible seeing, a recognition of the other as other and as worthy of love. As if to say, here is a part of me that is now for you. A gift creates or recognizes a bond that passes over the boundaries between us. This is why needing other people to know how much a gift cost is so distasteful. I once had a student, for example, who genuinely thought that he could calculate in dollars the pay that his parents were owed for having raised him. You know, you would take maybe 19 hours a day, whatever amount per hour, times 365, times 18, and then he could repay his parents, you know, like plus inflation, the whole thing. He could figure it out. And granted, he was only in high school, but I'm sure that some, you know, the fact that some people actually go on thinking this way into adulthood is certainly a sickness of the mind. We're right to feel indebted to our parents, and we are right that our debt creates a kind of obligation to those who gift us their lives. But the value doesn't inhere in the gift. But it also doesn't happen without the gift. I doubt that Uncle Mike or my mother are just over-the-top passionate about the cooking of food or wanted to save us money, right? As though they would have just written a check. Rather, they meant to recognize the journey that Elizabeth and I were starting together, a journey that would take place largely in a kitchen. So they do create, and that, that, that gift does create a certain kind of debt. It absolutely does. But it's not the kind of debt that you repay. The response, rather, for being recognized with a gift is to return recognition for recognition. Thank you is not a form of payment. It's a recognition. This is a long preface but I, I wanted to have that idea about gifts right in front of us in order to hear what is happening in Jesus' ongoing conversation with the crowds in John 6. We looked at the beginning of their conversation last week and touched only very briefly on a topic that he takes up and elaborates in today's part of the conversation. Jesus had told them, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father set his seal. Throughout this passage, Jesus is likening himself to the gift of manna in the wilderness. And as he goes on to elaborate more about what kind of bread that manna is, he's continually drawing on the language of the Exodus story and applying it to himself. He is the bread that comes down from heaven, as manna came down from heaven out of the dew. And this new manna, like the old manna, will provide exactly as God intends it to provide. In both Exodus and in Numbers, when the story of the manna is told, 
it's emphasized that God's provision lands exactly where it was intended. The Israelites were not allowed to gather more than they needed on each day, and if they did, all of the extra would spoil. If you had a big family, you gathered more. If you had a small family, you gathered less. And on Friday, everyone gathered extra so that the Lord could make it stretch over the Sabbath day when nobody did work or gathered food. And the miracle is that this gift was exactly enough. Because remember, they're in the desert. And to have just enough in the desert is also somehow more than enough. It's more blessing than should be expected in that context. To have enough in the desert is exactly the kind of gift that typifies God's economy. The concrete touches heaven because there is enough. God's economy is a gift economy. This is the kind of gift that Jesus is. A kind of radical, superfluous, yet necessary gift to the world. He came down from heaven like manna, and like manna, he is both just enough and also more than enough. The gift is just enough. It's necessary. It fixes. It heals. It heals a broken world full of wounded souls. There's a kind of practical, this is how you should live aspect to the gift of Jesus. If you have two coats, give one to someone who doesn't have one. Unless you become like one of these little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Go sell all you have and give the money to the poor. Then come follow me. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But the gift also opens onto an oblivion that it's hard to know what to do with. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Everyone who has learned from the Father comes to me, not that any, every, anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it on the last day. The manna lands exactly where it needs to, but it opens on a mystery that we can really only just step back and look at. In Jesus' life and teachings, God has given us the gift of a glimpse at what it's like to be God. And partly you know that you should take your sandals off like Moses in the presence. But then you also have to realize that silence and stillness ring truer than that. We can see what it's like to be God. Can we believe that such a gift is intended for us? Life without end. Bread without hunger. A kind of generosity that begins with what you need and then gives and gives and beholds and gives. Can we believe in such a gift? 
Or beyond this, do we even know what it would mean to believe in such a gift? In his 1979 theological memoir, Christianity Rediscovered, Vincent Donovan reflects on a conversation he once had with a Maasai elder to whom he had been witnessing as a missionary for some time. Donovan is a Roman Catholic, and the two work out together how the Maasai tribe, as a tribe, might do things like Eucharist, naming, and baptism in a manner that's true to their context as a non-Westernized African tribe. In one of their conversations, the elder and Donovan take up and debate the word faith. What would it mean to believe in the gift? Donovan writes, The Maasai elder said, For a man to really believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck with the front paws, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms, pulls it to himself, and makes it a part of himself. This is the way a lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith is. What would it mean to believe in the gift in this way? You can never repay the gift, and even to try repaying it is somehow off the mark. You can go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor, but in the Christian tradition, even this is merely a stammered beginning. It's barely the TH in thank you. And what comes after it isn't more of the same. You don't sell everything and then repay and repay and repay and repay. The Christian life is not indentured servitude paying God back for the credit of salvation. As Pastor Steve Wishart often says, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. It's about recognition and participating in the relationship that you have recognized. It's more like what happens in the novel Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. In part of the book, the main character, Okonkwo, returns home from a seven-year exile to find that his friend, Obiorika, has kept the small amount of money and capital that Okonkwo had to abandon when he left. And as Okonkwo has been away, Obiorika has been lending it out slowly in Okonkwo's name so that Okonkwo can return with a little bit more than nothing. His family has a place from which to restart because Obiorika did this for his friend. And when he presents the money to his friend, Okonkwo says, I don't know how to thank you. I can tell you, said Obiorika, kill one of your sons for me. That would not be enough, said Okonkwo. Then kill yourself, said Obiorika. Forgive me, said Okonkwo, smiling. I shall not talk about thanking you anymore. The impulse to repay is such a natural response. But at a certain point, you have to realize that doing everything may miss the mark. 
because God's economy opens onto the sublime. It opens onto a thing that you will not understand, but that you are invited into. As Buddha said, before conversion, cut wood and carry water. After conversion, cut wood and carry water. Or in our own tradition, it was St. Augustine who said, love and then do what you will. Receive the gift of being made into Jesus' body and then do what you will. Let genuine love become your only desire and then do whatever you want. But again, even this call and response, if that is your only picture of the gift, you're missing the fullness of the gift. Vincent Donovan's conversation with the Maasai elder continues. I looked at the elder in silence and amazement, but he was not finished yet. We did not search you out, Padre, he said to me. We didn't even want you to come to us. You searched us out. You followed us away from your house into the bush, into the plains, into the steppes where our cattle are, into the hills where we take our cattle for water, into our villages, into our homes. You told us of the high God, how we must search for him, even leave our land and our people to find him. But we have not done this. We have not left our land. We have not searched for God. God has searched for us. God searched us out and found us. All this time we think that we are the lion, but the lion is God. The fullness of the gift of Jesus is not that you have been given life abundant, life to the full, life eternal and flowing over. All of that's true. And it's that spirit that animates the exhortation to the church in Ephesians. Christians speak the truth even to their detriment, not because we're particularly righteous, but because through Jesus, God has given us the gift of belonging to each other. We build each other up with our words. And we recognize with our wallets that we live in a gift economy that's not limited by scarcity. Did you notice how striking it is, the reason why thieves are exhorted to give up stealing in the reading from today? The writer tells them to labor and work honestly with their own hands, not because, like, go get a job, kid, or whatever. It's not about being a useful productive member of society who can provide for yourself. It's about gift. Let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. It's about learning to live in God's economy where excess is for sharing and where there is already more than enough. Because of Jesus, life is this kind of economy. There is already more than enough. You don't need to double down, like we talked about last week, on a rigid sense of identity. You don't need to deserve to be here. You don't need to get what you deserve. 
You don't need to sacrifice your ethics to get ahead. You don't need to seize control. You don't need to determine the outcome. You don't need to go around anyone's back to do things your own way. There's a kind of humor to it, really. Congratulations, you've been wasting your time. There is already more than enough. But as I said, even this is not the fullness of the gift. In Matthew, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. The traditional interpretation of this, and this is true, is that this is what our response to the gospel should look like. Give up everything and follow Jesus. Keep back nothing for yourself. But this is only a part of the picture. Because we are also the treasure in the field. And when God found us, God went in joy to sell everything God had in order to buy the field. Jesus says, everything that the Father gives me will come to me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In one of his sermons on the Psalms, Augustine speculates that God loved his son so much that he created us so that his son could have brothers and sisters. God gave humanity to Jesus. And God gave Jesus to humanity so that Jesus could give humanity to God. This is the fullness of the gift. As the body of Jesus, we are the gift that God is giving to God out of joy. Can you imagine? In an eternity beyond us, God said to God, You know what you would love? And then smiled. Thanks be to God.